Hello everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Africa Business of Sport podcast with myself, Adam Spio, and my co-host, Jabu Imtua. The World Cup has ended. What a final, what a tournament. 12 out of 10 for me and Jabu. Over the period of the World Cup, we had some special guests coming through discussing certain aspects of the World Cup and the business of sports and football in general. And now this is a review of all of them. Jabu, what do we have for our audience today? Yeah, so just as you alluded to there, Adam, after a fantastic World Cup and an excellent lineup on our World Cup series that our audience really enjoyed looking at the numbers, um, we think it's a great idea just to go back to those conversations, maybe remind those who have listened and those who haven't listened possibly to touch on the topics that were spoken about in those conversations. So we're speaking about Kevin Tennant and Alex Gillett, for example, Dr. Gerard Akindis, Professor Simon Chadwick and Ricardo Fort, going back to those conversations with little clips from those podcasts and just discussing them and diving a deep, a bit deeper to get more of an understanding of what this World Cup has produced for us. So firstly, we're going to speak about the first episode that we had on our series, which was with Kevin Tennant and Alice Gillett, episode 16, titled The Business History of the World Cup. What are your memories of that episode firstly, Adam? I really like the way Kevin and Alex really put together their journey getting into sports and how their individual passion for both the history of this, of the World Cup and football and even just for writing brought together such a fantastic chapter for me and for you i know that it was our favorite chapter of the book i really liked how they discussed the journey through with the broadcasting aspect with the building of the world cup aspect with the kind of prominence with sponsorship and marketing basically what they did is that they made anybody who has never interacted with the world cup before fully understand its past its present and what can potentially come in the future what about you jabu yeah it was a brilliant episode and as they both alluded to in that episode that they are football fans, first and foremost, but also historians, especially in the case of Kevin. So getting that historical perspective of a research area, which is not you know, that ubiquitous across the industry in terms of football history, which is something that they're really good at. It was really nice to just get a perspective from then and get an historical perspective as well, because as much as we know the 2022 Qatar World Cup today, Let's think about the 1930 World Cup. Let's think about the 1934 World Cup. I don't know if we have had any other opportunity to think that far back about the FIFA World Cup. So that was a pretty fascinating perspective from them. And just to maybe remind our listeners of what was said in that conversation, here's a clip, Kevin, speaking about what FIFA desired in terms of a major tournament back in the 1930s. This is really interesting because I think there was always, there was for a long time, a sense of wanting to have some kind of world championship. And that's quite important. And the the Thomas Lipton one was more on a kind of club basis in it. So that was kind of, it was at a very formative stage of club football. I don't think there was much of a sense of how to do it. And of course, the, the funny thing is, is that an English amateur team called West Auckland, uh, where, you know, the, re- the the story, I don't know how true this is. It's, it's claimed that they were invited because their initials, WA, were the same as Woolwich Arsenal you know, the club that eventually became Arsenal, uh, who were one of the leading clubs in England, but they weren't available. So West Auckland were invited in their place. So, <laughs> so that, but, but it was kind of on this very, um, 
yeah, it was it was on an amateur but a sponsored basis, and it just shows that there was there was an interest in having this kind of international competition, and also including a much more substantially including it in the Olympics uh, was important. Also, yeah, the the South American um, connection, the Copa America, is really important as well because, uh, like you say, because we didn't actually realize this until uh, we read it. I can't remember whose paper we read it in now, um, but we, but yeah, we were we were kind of surprised by this, but they're not surprised at the same time because the Latin Americans were cut off, or the South Americans particularly, they were cut off from the Europeans. They gained through kind of the mercantile networks of England. So a lot of kind of the early development of Argentina, Uruguay, and to some extent, Brazil, and to some extent, um, Chile as well, and Peru, but certainly Chile, where the, so where you had kind of ranching and other kind of industries that the, the English were actually heavily invested into. Um, that was where kind of football had been learned, if you like, in these countries. Uh, from the English, but they were they were cut off from the European network that FIFA had as well. Um, so it probably made sense there that they started to have that competition to play each other. Maybe um, so, so. Yeah, so it's it's quite an interesting structure. I think the other thing was is that um, there's probably a realization in FIFA at some point that it has to win its own competition. Well, to me, it was very interesting to find out that football, even at the Olympic level, wasn't professional. It was on the amateur level. And looking at FIFA now and projecting back to the kind of mentality that they had in the beginning, they potentially wanted to make it professional and also bring through a lot of revenue to keep the business sustainable. You and I read in the beginning pages of the first chapter that the monies that were obtained obtained from each of the World Cup was used to sustain FIFA for the four-year period before the before the next World Cup comes through. So at the end of the day, what you do see is that there's a huge focus on money, there's a huge focus on power as well, where FIFA wants to exert or wanted to exert its prominence and its nature and its status on the countries that it was having its event on. And for me, it was just really interesting to see that at every point in time, FIFA has always played the smart piece of the pawn where they've aligned with countries, with government structures, government ruling structures that enable them to have power and enable them to have prominence. One thing I really do like was the fact that broadcasting gradually grew to the point where FIFA started charging so much for it because there was a high demand for it being streamed across the world, not just in South America and in Europe because of the lack of access to um, broadcasting material that will enable it. What about you, Jabu? Yeah, I think one thing that stood out for me was, you know, in Kevin and Alex's descriptions of what FIFA wanted from host nations back then is a major contrast from what we see today because the hosting decisions and hosting or bidding processes these days, or at least in the last 10 to 20 years, in FIFA's history are all, you know, really centered around politics, right? So it's a really political process in hosting or bidding for a FIFA World Cup, where in the 1930 Uruguay World Cup and later in the editions in France, for example, in the 1930s as well, it was all about capacity. So do you have enough stadiums? Do you have the financial capacity or power to, for example, cover the travel expenses of all the participating teams? So for me, it was just that contrast and how significant it has become 
in recent years where there's such a huge emphasis on political bargaining and international relations and diplomatic talks when it comes to hosting a FIFA World Cup. But in those days, it was just all about, you know, do you have the basic needs of a tournament to take place in order to deliver a successful FIFA World Cup? So I think that was pretty fascinating for me. And even more fascinating was our next conversation on the series that we had with Dr. Gerard Akindis. And this is an expert when it comes to broadcasting and televising. And he wrote the chapter 15 of the business of the FIFA World Cup on televising and broadcasting itself. So he was a fantastic resource to speak on issues like media rights, the broadcasting rights, the TV rights when it comes to the FIFA World Cup. And what a fascinating man. Also very eloquent and, you know, very articulate as well. So just a, a fantastic person to speak about when it comes to the FIFA World Cup. One thing that stood out for me is this following excerpt where he explained why Africa has an issue when it comes to increasing the value of their broadcasting rights due to the economic power of the huge populations. I had the misconception, Adam, I don't know if you did as well, that just because Africa has a huge population and a huge young population which is continuing to grow, then that automatically translates to higher values of broadcasting. Did you have that same misconception or maybe did you have a better understanding than myself? To some degree, I did have that because the assumption is that the older we get, we get the more money we'll potentially have. However, he has probably done good research on the continent for a very long time to be able to tell us that, no, no, it doesn't necessarily mean that there'll be an increase in broadcasting access because there are a lot of young Africans who would not have the money to cater for accessing high-quality broadcasting and which... It's very true when you think about it, considering the fact that there's still a huge, huge section of Africa which doesn't have access to both the internet and the TV and high-quality radio and whatnot that will enable them to grow the broadcasting pedigree. One thing I did like, however, is that in, his, in giving us the response, it made me think a bit harder and wider of potential solutions to that. And that which came out for me was that we can improve the radio space on the continent because it can radio is one where it can be accessed anywhere. A farmer on the field with his sheep and his goat, a lady in the marketplace selling her goods, a student at school, anybody, a mechanic in his office, anyone can access. So when you're able to improve on your radio, right, what you do is that you're providing still high quality content to a wider space at a cheaper price. And you can even go a further step and say that let's partner with some of the betting organizations like Betway, 1x Bet Sporty, where for every time a young person is betting or for them to enjoy their betting experience, they can listen to high quality radio through the app, which will definitely increase participation and interaction. That's next level thinking. And just a bit more on why a huge African population does not necessarily translate to higher values for TV rights. This is an excerpt from our conversation on episode 17 with Dr. Gerard Akindis. We are clearly going to have a huge sports audience. So does that mean that the value of broadcasting rights and the broadcasting rights to the FIFA World Cup and all other different sports properties and tournaments are definitely going to increase over the next few years in line with the population increases that we're going to see in Africa over the next few decades? It's, that should be uh, automatic, but it's not. 
And it is not because of uh, the economics of Africa. Uh, the population is not enough to justify the cost. We have a young population, but a young population is also a, a mostly unemployed population. We have a big component of our population that is unemployed. We have a big component of the population with some, uh, who are entrepreneurs, survival entrepreneurs. What means that they don't have resources, they don't have disposable income to consume entertainment that much. Then because of uh, the privatization of broadcasting on the continent, a large component of uh, that population won't be able to afford a pay TV to watch the game. They won't be able to afford on their phones data to watch the games. These are the challenges Africa have. And we, although we have a large population globally in terms of uh, numbers, our economics is not very conducive to generate massive income out of the continent. And the only people who, or the only institution that allow us today to watch the World Cup is government. If government doesn't step in, to pay the right from the private entity that I think is a Togolese uh, organization that bought the rights for the World Cup in Africa. When I say Africa is mostly non, so uh, is excluding so, uh, South Africa and North Africa. South Africa we have Super Sport and Super Sport is pay TV. Uh, the French part we have Canal Plus is pay TV and in the northern part we have uh, Bean Sport is pay TV. If government don't come to get some of these games on free-to-air television, our young population doesn't have access to, to the games. They can only go to places where one person buy the subscription and watch it collectively. That is the way we, we manage to, to watch the games. Otherwise, the economic situation of the, of the continent doesn't give us the capacity to develop a very commercialized uh, broadcasting space. So again, Edom is a, a myth that has been busted by Dr. Gerard Akinis, as we just briefly touched on. And I think this is going to be a huge issue when it comes to the broadcasting scene in Africa in the next couple of years. And in, essentially, how do we leverage our huge population in order for that to translate to higher broadcasting rights, because all over the world, especially in the US and the UK at least, a high population or a high football consumption from many audience means that the increased broadcasting rights of, for example, the Premier League, the National Football League, the NFL in the US at least, are always just surging every single year. So I think that's our our huge challenge in Africa, especially when it comes to streaming and broadcasting sports in the next few years in terms of how do we turn or leverage on this huge population that we're going to have by 2050 in order to have a sustainable broadcasting model for sport? Well, like I said early on, they need to focus on radio because radio is the cheapest. Whether they like it or not, within the next 10 years, the African youth isn't just going to be on the same level as those within the European industry or the American or the Asian industry. So why don't you go easy, 
go with the cheapest, build it, build the following for it. If there's a very good following for the radio, I believe that it can even push more people to say, listen, we've had good content coming through radio. Why don't we start to have more content coming through TV? So at that point in time, you'd realize that you've built your audience, you've built their preference, you've built a form of profile for them, and it makes it very easy for you to then bring to them content that they'll be willing to pay extra money for that is what comes to mind yeah you spot on with that you know man if you want to hear more about that in the media rights scene when it comes to the fifa world cup and all the licensees that we spoke about in an earlier episode you can go to episode 17 media rights and broadcasting of the world cup with dr gerard akindis you know maybe do you want to take the next guest that we had because i know you had a fantastic time just racking the brains of professor simon chadwick yeah, Professor Simon Chadwick, he's he's a top, top geopolitics sports guru. I mean, the way he broke down the conversations, the kind of insight he gave us, I will recommend to our audience that after listening to this review, do check out each and every one of the episodes we've mentioned because it will educate you more. One thing I did like was the fact that he latched onto the word pro-human, which I proposed, and I really like the fact that he even used it as a benchmark to explain why soft power and international relations and diplomacy needs to be looked at from a very articulate point of view, especially with sports, given that countries which get to host the World Cup are at every point in time trying to prove to the world that, yes, they're fit for sports. Yes, they're fit for mega events. And yes, they are a very good place to come back and have experiences again. Jabu, what was one thing that Professor Simon Chadwick said or brought out that really stood out for you in the conversation on the relationship between Qatar and the Saudis during the current FIFA World Cup and for the one that is coming in potentially in 2030? For me, it was a fascinating perspective that he brought across when it came to Qatar and Saudi Arabia or the relationship between the two states. And being an international relations graduate now, I think it's very true what he said in terms of the relationship between Qatar and Saudi being such a big geopolitical issue, especially when it comes to sport. But at the same time, on the contrast really is that if they had to put efforts together and really work together in order to improve the footballing landscape in Middle East and North Africa and possibly um, the rest of Africa, just because of the financial power that they have to do that, then huge power shifts in the football or global football space could genuinely just happen. And this is something he spoke about in episode 18, Qatar's geopolitical World Cup, where he spoke about the relationship between Qatar and Saudi Arabia and also put some thoughts around Saudi Arabia's 2030 bid to host the World Cup. This is Professor Simon Chadwick on the Africa Business of Sport podcast. So I think Qatar in many ways um, has secured first mover advantage. So for those strategists who are listening, you know, Qatar now has this first mover advantage in the Gulf region. So it was the first to host the tournament. It was the, it was the first in the region to create the infrastructure. Um, it was the first in the, the the region to one imagines we'll be able to use this word successfully deliver the World Cup. But in spite of Qatar's wealth, and in spite of the the scale of its ambitions, uh, it's not Saudi Arabia. 
Um, and and you know, if we if we, if there is such a thing as second mover advantage, um, then Saudi Arabia, I think, is seeking to achieve or to secure this second mover advantage because obviously what it can do is it can look at Qatar and it can can learn and um, and and adapt its future strategy in the context of what has been happening in Qatar. You know, keep in mind that that as I mentioned a little, a little earlier, maybe there are three hundred thousand Qataris in the world. There are three million people in Qatar. Keep in mind that in Saudi Arabia there are thirty-five million people, and and in terms of oil and gas wealth, uh, Saudi Arabia has been for the last forty or fifty years the regional powerhouse in in these terms. And so what we're now beginning to see in Saudi Arabia is, you know, in, in some ways, you know, Qatar, it's almost as though Qatar in the fullness of time will become Saudi Arabia light in the, in the sense that, you know, in, in, in terms of size, in terms of its population, in terms of its oil and gas reserves, in, in terms of its, its political influence um, and its sociocultural influence around the world, Saudi Arabia is a very different country to, 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 to Qatar. Now, Saudi Arabia will know this. And, and so I think what we're now beginning to see is, is as a second mover, Saudi Arabia is trying to retrieve territory, is trying to re retrieve power and influence that I think Qatar has secured to an extent at the expense of Saudi Arabia. Um, from the Qatari side, what we've now got to think and what I would be thinking it, it, if I was sat in government offices in Doha is if Saudi Arabia really does step up and spends big and makes a decision to, for example, uh, bid to host the World Cup, uh, can, can can we keep up with that? You know, can we compete? And, and, and what do we need to do to be able to retain some kind of parity with Saudi Arabia? And, and, and the normal Catholic response to, to this kind of thing is, is not to fight, not to antagonize, but to try and engage. I think that was a fascinating um, listen, Edom, and even more fascinating because on a podcast that I listened to a couple of days ago where Professor Simon Chadwick featured, he actually made the prediction that he thinks that the 2030 FIFA World Cup will actually go to Saudi Arabia. And the current climate and the current geopolitical climate and also the relationship that Mohammed bin Salman and Gian Gianni Infantino seem to have he believes that there's a high chance or it's definite for him that the 2030 world cup will go to saudi arabia what were your thoughts on his thoughts on the relationship between the two states and how that could actually evolve and what would that mean for football in the middle east and also in north africa for me it's really shocking that the Saudis did a, a 180 on the qatari where at first they seemed as though they were enemies but now they are becoming the best of friends to the extent that the Saudi Arabians want to invest into being sports. I saw that during the World Cup, the Saudi Arabian Football Federation was signing a number of MOUs with other federations, like with the Ghanaian one, with the Ecuadorian one as well. We can see that they are moving fast and they're moving mad. And with the increase in the appreciation of a United World Cup, like we see for 2026, I personally do agree and believe as well that Saudi Arabia would 
get the opportunity to host the World Cup because A, they can probably tell FIFA and say that whatever Qatar can do, we can do even better with the few that we want to have, number one. And number two, they probably would be able to build the momentum leading to that stage where they show that they're not only just building sports within their country, but they're also building sports within other countries as well, showing that global prowess. Yes, the Saudis, I would personally in 2030, I'd love to have a World Cup both in Saudi Arabia, Greece, and Egypt, because now it shows the world that Ubuntu is becoming more appreciated in sports. What about you, Jabu? Yeah, I think it would be a massive international relations development and story, really, if Saudi Arabia were to manage to do all the political bargaining in order to host the FIFA World Cup. When it comes to finance, though, I think it's a given that there are possibly the most well-situated states to host a FIFA World Cup just due to the amount of money they have um, and also their football investments. There's clearly a strategy that they have pre-2030 because just like Adam Crofton on The Athletic reported that Lionel Messi is now an ambassador of Saudi tourism and, for example, that Cristiano Ronaldo has been offered a huge contract for Al Nasser, which is a Saudi Pro League club. There is a deliberate effort to make Saudi Arabia a football center by associating itself with all these huge historic players that we have watched for the past few decades and having them on their side, having Lionel Messi, who has now just won the World Cup, be an ambassador of your bid in 2030 is something that will clearly put you in a very good position. The contrast to that is that you have Argentina or rather Uruguay and a huge South American contingent who is also bidding for the 2030 World Cup. And now having a South American in Lionel Messi being on your side when it comes to that bidding process, I think firstly it puts a fracture when it comes to South American um, confederations when they want to put together their bid. But also, as you mentioned about the MOUs, especially the one with Ecuador, I think that's a very significant one because essentially Saudi Arabia is creating fractures within the South American confederation itself. If you have a South American country like Ecuador, who clearly now have good friendly relations with Saudi Arabia, when it comes to bidding for the 2030 World Cup and you know countries like Uruguay, Argentina possibly wanting to do that, if you have an Ecuador who is on the side of a Middle Eastern contingent trying to bid for that World Cup, there's clearly some conflict that is bound to happen over there. And having, again, Lionel Messi as a Saudi tourist ambassador is also a huge spanner in the works, if you want to put it that way. But I think Saudi Arabia winning the bid to host the 2030 World Cup or the prospect of that happening will transcend football. It will be an international relations story. And just as Professor Simon Chadwick did allude in the episode, that what is happening in Qatar or what has happened in Qatar in terms of the hosting of the FIFA World Cup does not only mean significant implications for football, but for our world for the next 50 years. And I think that's a point that you really took on when you spoke about the impact of Qatar's hosting of the World Cup and all the geopolitical controversies around it. What's your thoughts on that? Well, the Saudis are moving mad and it will be very interesting, regardless of the fact that when it comes to the moving mad on the sports side, they're doing very well, they would have to prove to us on the human side that they can um, cater for the concerns that are coming through because 
Yes, we've had a very yes, exactly pro human. Yes, thank you for that. Pro human. We've had a very good World Cup happening in Qatar, but there's still people asking questions about migrant workers. There's still people asking questions about what is happening to the LGBTQ community now the World Cup is over. For Saudi Arabia to successfully get the opportunity to host the World Cup in an uncorrupt way, they would have to show to the world that they're pro-human. Because you and I know that in 2026, the United World Cup will go above and beyond to show to everybody that they are pro-human. And if this doesn't happen for the Saudis, it may just, and this is a fair enough analysis, it may just affect their, their opportunities and their ability to host the World Cup. But let's see, hopefully they will change their mentality towards all of these things and will become will come to see a more pro-human Saudi Arabia. Yeah, so for a holistic conversation that touches on international relations, diplomacy, soft power, world politics, Saudi Arabia and Middle Eastern politics, especially when it comes to football, you can listen to episode 18 titled Qatar's Geopolitical World Cup with Professor Simon Chadwick. And finally, to wrap up our series, we had the former global sponsorship head of Visa and Coca-Cola, the founder of Sport by Ford Consulting, Ricardo Fort, to speak about mainly what it meant for Qatar to have a unexpected U-turn when it came to alcohol because they had assured visitors or fans of the World Cup that alcohol would be sold in stadiums and in and around the tournament when it comes to fan festivals and fan parks, but that did not happen. And that had major implications for one sponsor, Budweiser, which cost them quite a lot of money. Ricardo Ford actually in a New York Times article estimated that that cost him about $5 million, if I've got my numbers right. Huge implications when it comes to contract cancellations, because this is unprecedented in that I don't remember a contract cancellation of the stature happening at a FIFA World Cup, which is a the major or formal sporting event. You know, this was bad PR, I feel, for the sponsorship um, scene when it comes to FIFA World Cups. But Ricardo believes that it will not have many consequences, which was fascinating to actually think about. He is of the view that this is not going to have huge consequences when it comes to the 2026 World Cup and that we can look at this as an isolated incident. Just before we go into the clip where Ricardo Ford gives us a bit more on Qatar's last-minute alcohol ban and what it meant for the sponsorship prospect of Budweiser, what did you take about or out of that conversation with Ricardo? I really appreciated the fact that for all the sponsorship and marketing activations that he worked on for the World Cup in 2002, 20, 2006, 2010, 2014, 2018, and 2022, they were all centered around giving people a better experience. So one thing he did mention for the 2014 World Cup in Brazil is that it allowed people to feel accepted because now they could use their cards their personal cards in countries where normally they wouldn't. And I really enjoy the fact that they look as the two organizations, they look beyond sports and looked at how they can interact with people and bring them the best form of comfort and satisfaction during a mega event, which was one thing I really enjoyed listening to. What about you, Jabu? Yeah, and I think for me, it might be a very easy 
response to give, but it was the Budweiser issue because we spent about 10, 15 minutes just chatting about all the implications of that contract cancellation, essentially, and what Budweiser had to do to be flexible and try to activate in different ways. I know their hashtag bring the bud um, campaign was them improvising on a huge stage at a very short time scale. And I think they have successfully done that. And I think they can pat themselves at the back because what happened to them in terms of Qatar, the Qatari government's U-turn when it came to alcohol, literally the day before, a couple of days before the tournament even began, must have done quite a lot to their plans and diminished many of their profits or revenues that they were expecting to make. But hopefully that can take some lessons to the next World Cup and what we could possibly think about when it comes to sponsorship and marketing of the World Cup. Definitely, they're going to be back in 2026 trying to do maybe more than what they plan to do at this World Cup in particular. But just on that issue of Qatar's last-minute alcohol ban and what it meant for Budweiser, this is Ricardo Fort on episode 19 titled Budweiser's World Cup Sponsorship Woes. And this is what he had to say on the issue. Um, it, it's impossible to, to say it for sure because, of course, only only the people involved with the discussions uh, have the answer. But if I if I had to guess what happened was beer has never been something that well, beer should have never been uh, approved to be sold in at stadiums for many reasons. Um, you know, but but the most important one is that Qatar is an almost alcohol-free country. So, in respect to their you know, religion and 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 costumes and and culture, that should have been a no twelve years ago. I think that for many reasons that has never been. Um, brought to the attention of the right people and at some point when the government realized that that was happening and the extent that that was happening the amount of you know kiosks selling beer in the stadia the amount of um uh you know of 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 fans that were going to drink so they realized that was going to be more than they could tolerate and they decided to change the change the rule I don't think this is a, the decision was wrong. I think you know the timing, of course, I think it was it was wrong because if it made Anhaze Bushing Bev, which owns Budweiser to work for years in the preparation, invest a lot of money to bring beer, to bring refrigerators, to bring people to to you know, to sell the beer, uh, only only to not be able to do it. So I think that that was a problem. But for me, that was more of a distraction. From the organizers and the government, then you know something that they knew all all along that was never going to happen, and they didn't say anything. I mean, this this is some people uh, you know speculated that that was the case, but I think this is just silly. I think it was just there's so many things going on when you're preparing the country for an event that sometimes some of these decisions may just fall down the cracks, and you don't realize the implications, and then when you Make a decision is too late. So I think that was the case for beer. They just realized too late, decided to ban it you know, too too late and created a problem for, for Budweiser and for, you know, for, for and has a bushing bev and, and disappointed some fans that wanted to drink beer at the games. But now just you know, in fairness, 
beer is not sold in a lot of countries uh, in, in, in at football venues. You know, if you go to Brazil, you don't buy beer. If you go to Europe, many countries don't buy beer. So not being able to drink in a football game is not something exclusive to Qatar. It's something that is, it's, it's happening in a lot of places in Europe, in Latin America for, you know, for sort of security reasons. So I don't think it's a big deal. If you ask Budweiser, they'll tell you something different, but you know, as a fan, I don't think it's a big deal. So there you have it there, you know. He speaks about it doesn't really have many consequences, which was really weird for me. Or uh, I couldn't really understand that until he elaborated further. But this, again, is an isolated example. And again, Budweiser has done a lot to be flexible. What are your thoughts on just the entire demise of Budweiser's World Cup sponsorship plans? Jabu, if you're to just lose out on $4 million for a brand like Budweiser in the stadia because they couldn't sell in stadia, I don't really think it affects them that much. And like he explained, it is this particular you know situation where the host of this World Cup do not allow alcohol, right? So they wouldn't want it to be um, taken within their stadia where it can affect the way people behave. And, you know, he even alluded to the fact that not taking alcohol was to an extent good because now fans could interact more with a level-headed interaction form, which I believe is also very sensible if you think about it. However, they still did make their money from the fan festivals, from the shops that they sold in, and from every other out-of-stadia experience, which I believe Budweiser will still see it as a win, even though they lost a major part of the revenue stream for this particular World Cup. I know that Americans love beer. And I do know that Budweiser <laughs> is going to have a very, very good time for the 2026 World Cup. So, of course, like you said, they're unbothered. They will just find ways of mitigating those losses maybe potentially for the incoming tournaments that would see, for for instance, for next year's World Cup, they'll probably take twice as many to cover that. So I, I see exciting times ahead for Budweiser and for people who love beer. We haven't seen this much sympathy for an alcohol brand in a very, very long time. And I know, I right? I felt a bit sympathetic, to be fair. One reason being because at uh, WSFS Africa, Budweiser was one of the sponsors and we had... Um, some networking events uh, after the event itself at WFS Africa. And there was a lot of Budweiser going around, which I think it's an enjoyable drink. So feel bad for them and uh, what happened. But I think they did really well to get up, dust themselves and try different ways to activate at the World Cup Edom. Of course, of course. I'm I'm looking forward to more Budweiser content, to more Budweiser advertisement. Who knows, maybe for the 2026 World Cup, they... We may be one of their partners for the World Cup. So we see exciting times ahead for beer. <laughs> Couldn't agree more. And that's about it. Kevin Tennant and Alex Gillett, episode 16. Episode 17, Dr. Gerald Akindis. Episode 18, Professor Simon Chadwick. Episode 19, Ricardo Fort. Eden, we've had an exceptional lineup of guests in this World Cup series. And what a series it was. Ah, I mean, all of them were so good. What I normally do is that during my day, I can go back to listening to three or four of them about two or three times, right? That's how really good, really, really good the conversations were. And if you're someone like me who is invested in sports business, this World Cup series and all the other series 
on the podcast would really be good for you. You get educated very well. You get to follow the conversations and you just really get to improve your understanding of both the global sport business and African sports business. Jabu, your thoughts? Yeah, it was pretty special to be able to facilitate those conversations to meet individuals who have a very unique perspective on the FIFA World Cup, not only this one, but a past few the past few editions. Um, I remember Kevin speaking about the 1990 Italia edition of the World Cup, for example, and him being there as a kid and watching it and having so much fun. To Ricardo speaking about his professional experiences at uh, the 2006, 2010, 2014 World Cup. So I think there was a broad range of individuals to cover all these different eras of the World Cup. And I think uh, we had a great, great time just evaluating the different aspects of that. Now, in the context of all these different conversations and angles that we have looked at the World Cup, so from a historical angle in episode 16 to the media angle in episode 17 to a geopolitical lens and then a sponsorship angle in episode 19 with Ricardo Fort, in the context of all those conversations and your own observations as a follower and fan and sports business specialist of the FIFA World Cup, what would you say is now the legacy of the 2022 World Cup? How will we look at it? Firstly, how do we look at it today now that it's ended? And five, ten years down the line, how do you think we'll remember this World Cup? First and foremost, everyone, myself and even you would agree that it's been the best World Cup we've seen so far with regards to sustainability, with regards to fan engagement, with regards to hooliganism and whatever things um not happening, with regards to how fans have been, you know, cooperating with authorities and rules, with regards to the football on the pitch as well. For me, the best World Cup football-wise, the best World Cup event-wise, I believe we are going to continue talking about this World Cup for the next five to ten years, documentaries will come from it, both from the World Cup organizing committee, from FIFA and from other content creators. We will see lessons being learned and implemented into subsequent World Cup events like a bigger access and concentration on fun festival, a bigger access and concentration on transport um, um, feasibility like we show organizers to come, what should be done, what should be in included for subsequent World Cups and how to better engage fans. Exciting times ahead, Jabu, exciting times ahead. Yeah, genuinely, I have, you know, really good memories, I feel, of the football in this particular World Cup. I think the excitement, the jeopardy that we saw, especially at the end of the group stage, I think the group with Japan, Germany, Costa Rica and Spain in particular was just you know, incredibly exhilarating to watch and be a consumer of the final was possibly the greatest final ever of a FIFA World Cup, especially, or at least in our lifetime. So in terms of the football, I think it was an incredible spectacle. Off the pitch, however, and we had the, the assumption that when the ball is kicked, when the first goal goes in, when Messi scores an incredible goal against Mexico, when... You know, the football just takes over and we all as football fans become entranced or enthralled by all the incredible skill and talent that we see on the pitch. We will forget about what's happening on the pitch. And I think off the pitch rather. And I think to an extent, 
to a certain extent that did actually happen. But on the other hand, definitely many media houses, many publications continued to report on and speak about the off-pitch issues at the Qatar World Cup. And I think we have to commend those media houses. I think in particular for me, I follow The Athletic quite closely. And in particular, Adam Crofton and Matt Slater, who are there on the ground for The Athletic, did incredible work in covering all those controversial issues in terms of migrant workers, in terms of the LGBTQ community and how they had consumed the World Cup. Now that we have finished the football, we are all celebrating Messi's greatness. What happens to the migrant workers who've been ill-treated over the past few years? There's no migrant worker fund that has come out of this particular World Cup. LGBTQ rights, that was not ever going to be just you know, legalized in Qatar. I don't, I don't think we're expecting that, but what contribution or what improvement has been made to the lives of the LGBTQ community in Qatar, but also worldwide in terms of them being able to participate in a worldwide sporting event like the FIFA World Cup? I'm not sure about that. So I think at least off the pitch, there are still many issues we'll discuss and we'll, that we'll continue to debate over the next few years, as Professor Simon Chadwick says. Another thing is FIFA. And I'd like to have your insights on this because we have had many conversations about the future of FIFA and whether we need FIFA or FIFA's credibility. And in terms of their credibility, I think it has diminished to a significant level. I think it was a horrible PR disaster led by Gianni Infantino himself. I think he should fire his media team, <laughs> to be fair, because clearly those were the individuals who approved or said it's a good idea to just before the tournament starts, tell everyone how you feel gay, tell everyone how you feel Qatari. I think on the surface, it might have seemed like some good clickbait and a really nice, well-structured speech, but just the impact and how it came across was just catastrophic. FIFA's credibility as a an institution of good governance, an institution of transparency, an institution of good ethics. I think that has gone down the drain as well. So, you know, out of those FIFA World Cup, they may have done fantastically well financially. Gianni Infantino reported that they made 7.5 billion in revenue, which is 1 billion, even more than their projections. So financially on the money, it was fantastic for them. Their commercial team did fantastically. But in terms of the PR in terms of how they approach certain issues, for example, the One Love Band um, debate that was going on and how they threatened sporting sanctions for any captains who wore the One Love armband, how they have approached the Qatari uh, local organizing committee and just the power that they abdicated in that regard. Gianni Infantino himself and the comments that he made throughout the tournament and just how poor a face he is for football um, in my opinion and that's something also that's going to be thought of at this particular World Cup that when we think of the Qatar 2022 World Cup we'll just remember that that was really the final nail and the demise of FIFA's credibility in global football. I don't know what's your opinion Adam? I could be wrong but this is just my observation of FIFA and at least their legacy coming out of this World Cup just as you alluded to, Jabu, on the playing side, it was a spectacular event to behold. On the pro-human side, I am still not very convinced 
the best thing I personally feel that will be good for FIFA going forward, for Qatar going forward, for the MENA region going forward, and for anybody who's going to host any major event going forward, will be for them to sit down and meet with all the parties that felt they were hurt. You and I will agree that for the countries that wanted to go through the One Love Band um, activation and with other conversations coming on with, are you assuring us that you're doing things for the migrant workers, this will be the best time for FIFA and the Qatar um, as a whole to come together and say, we are hosting a global forum on having conversations on how to improve these things. If they should do that, where fans and major and stakeholders from across the globe give their points and they start to work towards it, especially for the 2026 World Cup, I can assure you that FIFA's reputation will come back. One thing we saw, in fact, the main thing that we saw with FIFA is that for them, it's always about money. It's always about the business. They made more money than they projected, right? Three to 3.5 billion coming out from broadcasting alone, right? Jabu, their focus has been and will always be on the money. There exactly. is no way they were going to say this World Cup wouldn't have been held in Qatar because too much has been A, invested, and too much will go to the drains if they don't follow through with it. I'm very sure Gianni had some promises being made to him as well. Everybody gets something to benefit from this. And you and I know from FIFA's history, from watching FIFA Uncovered on Netflix, from listening to other podcasts, we talked about FIFA's corruption, that they would always put their business and their money first. Well, for the 2026 World Cup, I hope that the Canadians, the Americans, and the Mexicans would tell FIFA, you know what? We don't really care too much about what you want. We are going to bring the pro-human side to play. And in doing that, we'll start having we'll start having conversations with stakeholders from across the globe years before so that they get comfortable. Because right now, if the World Cup should go back to the MENA region within the next 10, 15 years, people will be like FIFA, you're just putting money, which we already know ahead of things. Gianni, he didn't really convince me. You know, I'm I'm very disappointed just as you are. Jabu that you know they picked what they wanted to do because they knew that hey whether people complain or not there will be a lot of people I saw a stat today that 1.4 million people visited Qatar for the World Cup imagine if each of those 1.4 is spending a, mini a, a minimum of $100 on each of the activations that they go through that's so much money coming through so of course who really cares about the complaints of people who are part of the marginalized group? At the end of the day, FIFA is going to make his money, Qatar is going to make his money, and they're going to be comfortable. But if the organizers for the United World Cup come out and say that we want to be pro-human, we want to give people the chance to be a part of the organizing up until 2026, I believe that this can save FIFA's face if they're up to it. And the Qataris should just come up with a system where they can start to put more attention, more human attention on the migrant workers, more human attention on the marginalized group. At the end of the day, we are a global village, right? And to be called a global village, you need to accept people of different ways of life. Hopefully, maybe in 10, 15 years, we'll see that in the MENA region. We don't know yet, but we're hopeful. On the infrastructural side and on a more progressive note, when you look at the stadiums, 
for example, and what the legacy of the stadiums will be, those were possibly some of the most well-developed, exceptional, world-class stadiums that we have ever seen. You know, I think the Lucille, for example, rivals the Benabao, it rivals the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. I think it's a cathedral of football. What happens to the stadiums now? We spoke about this very briefly with Kevin and Alex on the first episode of the series. And you mentioned how the 947 stadium is going to be, you know, uh, dismantled and given or donated to a couple of confederations across different continents. What happens to the stadiums now? I think, for example, what they should be thinking about is the Qatar Stars League, which is their domestic league. And how could they possibly integrate those world-class stadiums into their programs with the Qatar Stars League. I know that there's some stadiums that are going to be used, for example, as wedding venues, some stadiums that are going to be used for different community centers or developmental centers. A certain stadium is going to be turned into a hotel. So there's a couple of strategies that the Qataris have. But I think, for example, um, and this is a question I want to throw at you, Edom, in terms of what should Qatari government officials or football executives in Qatar be thinking about now what should the supreme committee be thinking about now that the world cup is over they've got all these beautiful stadiums but what is their use now i did watch a video where they were explaining the direct plans for the stadia after the world cup i know for a fact that stadium 974 parts of it will be given to fekafoot through the partnership with the Qataris and Cameroon through Samaeto and for other places, for all of them, the seating capacity will be slashed. I am surprised though that some of them would also be turned into restaurants, hotels, wedding centers. Would they be done fully? Do they not plan on hosting another World Cup within the next generation? You and I don't know, but I do know that on the maintenance level, they will find innovative ways of 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 utilizing the already beautiful stadia that they have. I know that the all Asian games will be going there very soon. And of course, the league, that league would improve. It will grow in prominence and stature. And who knows? Imagine some of the stadia get to be bought by some of the top clubs over there through their sporting prowess that they'll gain over the years to come. So I believe on the stadium side, the Qataris are doing a very good job. Last thing to say, uh, Messi has finally won his World Cup. It's been hard coming through for him. Um, congratulations to him and La Abi Celeste for the wonderful achievement. He's my favorite. He's my good. Um, I'm blessed to have seen him win it. And I'm sure most of you, our audience, are blessed to have seen him win it as well. Thank you very much for being with us for this week's conversation. We are truly grateful. We thank you for your participation throughout the series. We look forward to bringing you more content for the remainder of the year and for season two to come next year. For me and Jambu, it's goodbye. <laughs>